podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. If your loved one is at risk of a fall, the Symphony Medical Alert System from CVS Health can help support their safety in their home with 24-7 emergency monitoring, even when you can't be there. Terms and conditions apply. Learn more about Symphony at cvs.com symphony or find it at your nearest CVS Health Hub. So let's say you're into yoga or Pilates, or maybe you dabble in gymnastics like me. Either way, you know being flexible is key to doing what you love. That's why Smoothie King created this stretch and flex smoothie for people like us. With whole fruits and organic veggies, plus type 2 collagen, make it part of your daily fitness routine to support flexibility and joint health. So try the stretch and flex smoothie in tart cherry or pineapple kale. Order online today for pickup or delivery. Smoothie King, rule the day. Okay, next up is our look at Liverpool's financial situation vis-a-vis fair play regulations. We took as our inspiration for this feature an article from Beyond the Cop site by Nazar Gama and Ed Thompson, which attempted a projected analysis of Liverpool with regard to the financial impact of commercial revenue, also player transfers in and out of LFC. The article then tried to provide an early projected income statement for the financial year of 2013-2014. So we're lucky tonight to be able to speak directly with Ed. Ed, thanks for joining us uh, tonight. Hey, that's okay. Thanks for asking me. Uh, first off, Ed, your site, financialfairplay.co.uk, is dedicated to new financial regulations in, 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 that are in place. And Liverpool FC have put themselves alongside Arsenal in the vanguard of pro-FFP lobby since the arrival of FSG. Are Liverpool becoming poster boys for FFP, or are they hindering themselves, in your opinion, by hitching their wagon so publicly to this particular uh, setup? Oh, well, I don't think they're, they're hindering themselves in any way. I mean, you know, let's, let's face it, the rules have come in, so everybody's going to have to to comply with the rules. And, um, you know, I, I think that there's um, an element of self-interest amongst the Liverpool owners, to be honest, that, um, you know, nobody wants to be in a position where you're, you're losing £30, £40 million pounds every year. And um, actually, the financial fair play rules will mean that now with this new TV deal, that the club should really be on a kind of wage movement actually start to kind of break even and, and, you know, perhaps even make a profit as well. So I think there's some self-interest in it, uh, in there as well. And also, having said that, there is also a piece of um, self-interest in as much as it, these rules will help the club, you know. In, um, they will put the brakes, as we've seen, on, you know, clubs like Manchester City and Chelsea and Paris Saint-Germain and other clubs um, who have been spending very freely they'll put the brakes on them and that will kind of improve the competitive position of, of, of Liverpool. Sure, so basically w- w- the way you're looking at it, there's a certain element of self-interest there uh, from FF- FSG's point of view. From the club's point of view, uh, Ed, do you see Liverpool benefiting ultimately um, from sticking rigidly to the, to the rules and, and, and like being to the fore and pushing them or do you see it as something that could ultimately be a negative for the club? Oh, no, I can't see any, any way of it being negative for the club, to be honest. Um, it's, it's hard to predict the future. I mean, that is the, the, the difficult part here. You know, we, if, if we knew what was going to happen to the club in the future, if the club could guarantee on, on Champions League income, where it would be getting £30 million a year, you know, if you knew what was going to happen with new sponsorship deals, if you knew what was going to happen with future TV deals, then perhaps, you know, it would it, it, be a much clearer position. But unfortunately, you can't. So, um, I, I think... I think the, the, the financial fair play should play should play to Liverpool's advantage in as much as you've got to balance your incomings and outgoings and, and Liverpool have a very strong international fan base they're able to write very large commercial deals you know that the, their current uh, kit deal is, 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 is huge 
Um, so they see the benefit of that. And so provided they can effectively get into the Champions League, which you know they may well do this, this season, then, then I think the future does look pretty bright for the club, to be honest. Excellent. Uh, there's something, there was a statement in the article that really took me by surprise. Uh, I just want to run a past you before I let the other guys uh, ask you a few questions. And uh, The statement was, it was pretty stark, it, there was a, a reference to the mythical net spend figure, which is largely irrelevant. Now, for most people, they think they're on the cutting edge if they're quoting net spend. They seem to think that it's very much uh, where it's at. Could you explain the rationale behind the statement that that net spend is actually a mythical idea? Yes, no, it's a bit it's a bit complicated. So don't doze off because it's a little bit to do. I need to talk about accounts here. But, but the, the way all the financial fair play rules basically require broadly clubs to break even. Okay, so what is breaking even? Well, you know, you would expect it to be well. You know, you know what you're spending and you know what uh, incomes you've, you've got, and it should be a fairly easy process. However, when we look at football clubs, the, the big um, expenditure is on on transfer fees, and so actually the way that the the UEFA's rules and and accountancy rules work are that um, the the money spent on a player has to be written off over a number of years. So if the you know take the the, the famous signing of uh, Torres Fernando Torres, it cost about fifty million pounds. He was signed by Chelsea on a five five year deal. Well, actually, in terms of the accounts, that didn't get recorded as a, as a minus fifty pounds, fifty million pounds in year one, because it was on a five year deal. It actually records as a as a minus ten million pounds for each of the next five seasons. And so, it, you can spend a lot of money on a on a on a player, but actually, it not have a huge impact on the the bank accounts that year. And then the reason why it also gets a bit messy is, is you know, what happens when you come to sell a player? Well, actually, if um, if, uh, if if you sell it, once you sell a player, actually, whether you've made a profit or a loss in the accounts is all dependent on on what we call the book value, and, and it kind of gets a bit bit nitty gritty and potentially boring to some people. But but sure. actually, when you when you've got you, you, the player like Torres who bought was bought fifty million pounds in in the books of the club, he gets written down at ten million pounds. A year as a cost, and after after two seasons, he's actually sitting in there uh, as a book value of thirty million pounds. And then once you sell the player, if they sold the player on, well, actually, if they sold him for more than thirty million pounds, they'd recorded that as a profit in that year. And if they sold it for less than thirty million pounds, it would be a loss. So you can see, actually, you can get to a position where you can sell a player for well less than you bought them for, but actually record it as a as a, a profit in that year. Right. Um, it, it gets quite complicated. I mean, I mean Carol, perhaps, is a, a, an example closer to, to people's hearts, you know? People yeah. think, well, you know, we bought him for 35 million, I believe it was, and sold him for whatever it was, 17 million. But actually, by the time Liverpool sold, sold, sold the player, he had a book value of about 17 million pounds anyway. So, in terms of the, you know, the impact in the accounts for that year, nothing. You know, it, it's um, actually the club is better off without him because they aren't then having to write down another chunk of money for the next year. And then we obviously don't have to pay his wages. So you, you see, it gets all a bit messy. So you, you can't quite look at, at, at you know, the finances of the club and say, well, you know, we've had this much money coming in and we, we've spent this on, on new players. You kind of have to, need to understand the whole position of the club. Another example is what happened at Manchester City, whereby, you know, they actually spent quite heavily in the summer. But up until the last, I think, one or two uh, player spends, they were actually recording net kind of a net break even on the whole deal, just because of the fact that they'd let some players go. They were no longer having to write down their, their, their contract fee. 
see that's saving money on wages. So it all gets a bit messy. So this, you know, you can't just look at, you know, net spend. You need to look at the whole position, and that's where it gets really messy. And that's where well, people like Naz, who, who wrote the article, are really good. You know, he's able to. Sure, sure. So basically, us armchair experts who've been quoting that span are, are, are completely clueless. Can I can I ask uh, if if you wouldn't mind? Phil's got a question for you now, uh, Ed. Ed, hey, it's Phil here. Listen, I'm, I'm I was a bit fascinated reading your own site on on financial fair play and also the information in Nasdaq's article around um, the idea that uh, the the debt for equity conversion in that a owner where a loss is above the permitted loss for the year, can actually convert that to equity in the club and not actually have, well, can, can attain the break-even status that's set down in financial fair play. I suppose at, at, at a simple term for me, I'm trying to figure out, could that mean that sugar daddy owners like Abramovich or um, Sheikh Mansour, etc., could theoretically, year on year, break the rules around the financial fair play for making a profit or coming in with the, within the acceptable loss remit and continue to just convert to equity to cover whatever spend they wanted to do? No, it doesn't quite work like that. Although up to an element, up to a point, you are right. Um, so, you know, the idea of, you know, the UEFA's financial fair play rules are that clubs break even. Broadly, you, you manage the incomings and outgoings. Okay, so that's a kind of straightforward concept. But the, the way that they've, they've looked at the rules is say, well, actually, you know, to be fair, you need to break even over. We won't look at break even over one season in UEFA. We'll do it over, over two or three seasons because that's kind of makes sense. Something might have happened one season and not the other. OK, so that's kind of how they approach it. And then they say, actually, although we say you've got to break even, well, it's not quite break even. Um, we'll allow you to lose over those um, the initial period was two seasons. Over the, over the first two seasons, you can lose five million euros. We'll let you lose five million euros, and with that, there's no sanction if, that, if you lose up to five million because it's not that much. However, we'll actually, having said that, we'll allow you to go up to 45 million, million euros loss over those two seasons. So, as long as you've got a sugar daddy owner who can inject equity into the club to cover anything over the five million pounds up to the 45, sorry, five million euros up to the 45 million euros. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's just getting a bit complicated, but, but, but basically what it's saying, over the first two years, you can, you can lose 45 million euros, which is about 37 million, million pounds. Yeah. But, but only, you can only go over this 5 million euros limit and go up to the 45 million maximum if the owner is prepared to inject equity. And what that means, inject equity, means that, in effect, the, the club creates new shares. Mm-hmm. creates new shares, and the owner then buys the shares. And he has to buy the shares for the amount of... The, the, the equity in this mm-hmm. example it would be whatever's over 5 million euros up to however it makes it up to 45 million so you know it could be putting in you know 40 million euros or whatever it could be um, and then that money then goes into the club that money goes into the club and the, the club's debts don't increase and that's mm-hmm. the, the idea behind this that UEFA don't want the club's debts to increase um, and what's so the owner got to show for it? Well, he's got some more shares, more bits of paper. Well, he, he, he would have had 100% of the shares in the club anyway, so having more shares actually doesn't help him in any way. The only way he'll ever get the money back on that is if the club sell, um, he sells the club for a profit or, or if the club actually report, um, you know, report a profit mm-hmm. from, from you know, trading and then actually he can pay himself a dividend out of the money. But it's kind of, he ties his money in. What, what, what the rules say is you're not allowed to do is... Whereas we saw in the past, clubs would just run one of big debts and would owe the bank more money and, you know, living on overdrafts in effect. They're no longer able to do that. If they go over the 5 million euros, 
They can only go up to 45 million euros loss over those two seasons. And only then, if the owner actually sticks his hands in the pockets and puts that money into the club. And, so, Ed, so Ed, just, 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 just to cut in there, right? And, and it's the bit that I'm trying to get my head around. Is, that, is it only for those two seasons? I, what, what I'm wondering is, at the end of the yeah. two seasons, can he continue to put it? Is there that 45 million sort of spread that they have, or does it finish there and you've only got a 5 million loss which you can run, regardless of whether you're going to convert further losses to equity as such? Well, it, it's kind of a it, it's it's a rolling um, it's a rolling process. So, you know, after that, then it looks at the next three yeah. seasons, um, and so. But then the threshold is then reduced that the owner can put in. Right. So, so so, so after the after the first two seasons, when it's forty five million euros over the first two seasons, then it's then it looks at three seasons and it's like forty five million over over those three seasons, and then it cuts down to uh, thirty million over. Three seasons, if that's right. Yes. So, so the, the, it's reducing all the time, and and now, I mean, the point is where we are now in this season. Say for Liverpool, for example, is for this season, next season, and the season after, Liverpool's average loss has to be below eight million pounds a season. You know, okay. That's all it can be, and that isn't very much when you consider that they've historically lost, you know, over you know thirty million plus, forty million, you know much significantly higher figures but now the result you know that the maximum loss and that's including the money that the owner can put in in equity is only around eight million pounds a season for you know this season next season and the season after so the things have changed and the the, the big losses that we have seen are, are going to be, be reduced and the, you know the ability for the owner to stick their hand in the pocket and credit to equity kind of starts tapering out now and they're not really able to do that Okay, cheers, Ed. That's that's interesting stuff. Uh, Steve, here's a question for you, if that's okay. Hi, Ed. Um, yeah, just something based upon what you've said there. So I was just listening back, and and it's great to hear somebody give a, a good in-depth analysis of, uh, of of the the FFP situation. But will this eventually stop the likes of, let's take Real Madrid, for example, who in the past have, as you said there a moment ago, run up massive debts and and been bailed out left, right, and centre, whatever reason may have been given for it. Yeah. Will that eventually stop this form of, of um, profiteering, so to speak, uh, from a club like that? It's, it's difficult. The dynamics that could say Real Madrid are, are, are a bit weird uh, in as much as they've got advantages. So Real Madrid particularly, they've got advantages because um, the TV deal in Spain is negotiated on an individual level rather yeah. than a group. Yeah. Level so so they get um, a huge all the TV money basically not all of it but a huge amount gets cut up between Barcelona and Real so they get that they've also got big tax advantages as well so so they get huge amounts huge advantages anyway being global brands they're then able to write huge commercial deals so the commercial deals that you see at the very very top clubs that are are you know if anything increasing so um, you think things are are potentially about to change in Spain so. You know, we're seeing that you know, they might not no longer be able to write um, individual commercial deals. They might have to um, pull their pull the deals. Then the tax advantages might change. So it's a bit weird what's happening in in Spain. But I guess what we are seeing, I guess going back to the thrust of the question, is you know, will we see clubs that were being uh, bankrolled by sugar daddy owners? Will we see that all changing? And the answer is is very much yes. Uh, it has to. You know, um, as long as we assume that UEFA is serious about about the rules and we haven't yet seen it, um, seen what kind of punishments they're going to apply for overspending, then, then the landscape has to change. And you could argue it already has from, for, for many clubs. There's a few who've kind of like almost buried their head in the sand and saying, actually, we're, we're, 
We're just hoping it'll go away. But in, and that's the interesting point to see what happens there. Ed, how you doing? It's Stephen Brown here. Um, just a quick one for you, Ed. Um, my question is, obviously it's been driven by Platini and UEFA. Um, what happens yeah. when Platini steps up to become the FIFA president, which looks like it will be the next step for him? Is Are UEFA going to keep pushing this as stringently as they will while Platini's with UEFA? And yeah, also, I, as a second part of that question, what will prevent, or is there any prevention measures being taken for clubs in different leagues, such as Qatar or any of the Middle Eastern clubs or Argentina or Brazil, that could go and spend the money that obviously Real Madrid and so on have spent every season? Uh, well, I guess in terms of the UA, so the big question is, is uh, how serious are they about it? Um, I mean, Platine and, and his deputy have both nailed their colours to the mast on, on, on an FFP. Uh, I, I can't see Platine going that his, you know, his deputy, if you, you read all, all the, 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 the interviews and they're so wedded to it that the change, the change in platinum at the top, assuming assuming this kind of deputy takes over, which is a likely scenario, then, then actually there's no change. Uh, and, and also that the important thing about the UEFA FFP rules is that they're actually voted in by the clubs. The European Club Association voted them in. Um, so to have somebody then at the top actually then kind of going back on it and, and trying to change it would be would be very difficult. You know, there's a lot of very strong clubs within in Europe, particularly the German clubs, who are very, very um, strong advocates of FFP. Um, you know, the European Club Association is, is headed up by, by, by Riemenegger. Um, it, it's, it's part of the DNA of, of, um, of, of UEFA now. I can't see that changing. Um, you know, it was still the debate is, is how, how strongly it's going to punish clubs who, who breach the rules. But, Ed, um, Ed, Ed just, just on that bit, is that because it benefits the bigger clubs in real terms, that FFP keeps allows rich clubs to stay rich and it's harder actually for the smaller clubs to become big clubs because it's like they can't, you can't have that sugar daddy owner come in and spend 200 million, 300 million in one go to turn them into a super club. Now, interestingly, I don't think it is because if that had been the case, then the European Club Association, which is uh, a huge number of clubs across Europe, uh, the vast majority of whom do not have the sugar, sugar daddy only scenario, have voted for the rules to come in, uh, and so the 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 the, 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 account, the argument there appears to be the reason why the clubs have voted it in is that by and large the vast majority of them are opposed to concepts where they they, they are forced into a position where they have to uh, to overspend in order to succeed, and actually genuinely, you know, you, you look at some of the pronouncements come out of Holland and Germany. You know what happened in at Chelsea and in Manchester City and Paris Saint Germain. Um, it's really deeply unpopular across a lot of clubs uh, in Europe, um, and you know, in each of you know, you look at um, what you look at Holland. You know, it used to be in, in Belgium and Czech Republic. These 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 used to be actually challenging at the top level in European football, and it's just not. It hasn't been possible for it recently. And one of the things that those clubs appeared not to like was the you know the concept of having to spend huge amounts of money in order to succeed, and, and not you know if you don't have a sugar daddy owner or if you're restricted in being able to have one which is the case in lots of lots of clubs in terms of Germany for example then you know they're, they're, they're not able to succeed and they would quite like you know the, the FFP rules to come in and stop that one very last yeah. question I suppose one conce- one one formed opinion that people have around FFP is that if you don't comply you're out of European competition 
it's yeah. that isn't the case. Am, am I right in thinking? Like, and it, it, like, there's a good chance that if you don't comply with FFP, you're going to get a warning and then a slap on the knuckles before anything serious serious happens. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the way. People don't really know yet. What was happened is UEFA have issued uh, punishments and they've they've issued nine sanctions, and they've said that any club that fails the break even test uh, will uh, receive one of the sanctions. Um, those sanctions raise, range from a warning up to full, uh, you know, exclusion from European competition. And kind of in the middle, they, they include things like a potentially a points deduction when you're in the Champions League group stage or the Europa League group stage, or or a reduction in the number of players that you can register for your uh, European competition. So there's a kind of various various levels of punishments that that, that can apply. Um, although we know what the punishments are, what we don't have yet is a tariff of how those punishments will be applied. Uh, and UEFA has kind of been been Shying away from that, I think, because ultimately, ultimately, UEFA will argue that it's not actually them who's going to be issuing the punishment. They set up an independent body which will determine whether or not uh, clubs have uh, breached the rules, and then they'll determine what rules will be applied. Uh, and they've done that so that UEFA can be at arm's length for many of the, uh, the punishments that, that are imposed on the club, because ultimately the clubs can then uh, appeal to CAS. Now, what's happened under the? I mean, we talk about FFP and we talk about. Um, break even we're, we're constantly familiar with that concept but actually under the whole ffp rules it, it also includes uh, requirements for clubs to stay up to date with their taxes and and, and their transfer fees paid to other clubs and it is called payables and this, this concept of overdue payables is part of the ffp rules as uefa through that this independent board have already sanctioned a number of clubs and banned them from european competitions for falling behind on their tax bills basically um and so they've already applied you know, outright bans in European competitions. So we haven't yet seen what bans they're going to, or what punishments they're going to apply um, for overspend. But the punishments the board have so far applied have been very severe. So, you know, it, it kind of, we don't really know. And we won't know until April next year um, what punishments will be applied to clubs. And there'll be sure. a lot of clubs who'll be looking at that very nervously. So the clubs are going to be Paris Saint-Germain, who... Um, have effectively failed the break-even test. That, 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 it, 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 it's a tangled, tangled web, Ed, is basically what you're telling yeah. us. Especially with Platini, so yeah. however. Uh, listen, you're a gentleman. We've really enjoyed that. It's been very insightful. Uh, thank you so much uh, for, for the opinions and the answers. Um, uh, and get on, get, on, get on Ed's website. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> to find uk if you want more info around it. Thanks a lot, Ed. Brilliant. Many thanks. I enjoyed it. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Appreciate Cheers. it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, it's a preview of the yeah, right. Very good. Let's get started. Um, briefly, I want to introduce our guest, Niall Byrne. I want to thank you, Niall, for coming in to us today. Niall, a former Liverpool player, uh, youth international. Um, we're very, very lucky to have him. And we're just going to ask some of the guys here to um, pop a few questions towards Niall that they've been uh, thinking about during the week. So, Phil, um, I'll start with you if you have a question for Niall. Get us going. Yeah, I suppose, Niall, I, I remember you coming up to the ranks because you were one of the first sort of big sort of kids going over from um, Ireland to Liverpool in terms of the school by days and I, I, remember, I knew of you coming through the ranks of Lourdes as well just I remember reading an article beforehand and it was that's your United fan prior to going away now when the scouting and all was happening at the time um, were United in for you and was there more clubs than just Liverpool in for you and what, what, what swayed the decision for Liverpool at, at the time well I suppose it was the first club I went to you know, when I went to Lourdes, say around the 14 age group, things happened fairly quickly. Noel McKay was just had to be appointed the head scout at the time, so he'd been the Nottingham Forest scout and he sent away the looks of Roy Keane and stuff. So 
he was just at the Gatton Liverpool job and I was actually the first fellow he sent away so he could not watch one or two matches you know within six months of going to Lourdes I was on a plane over to England and I think I was there for a week the first week and I was just like fell in love with the place you know so there was clubs after that you know probably every club in the UK within the size of six months wanted me to go over you know it came in for me you know being a, at the time a man, mad Manchester United fan people probably couldn't understand why don't you go to United but just you, you go to Liverpool it's a special place you know what I mean once you're there you're settled in you meet people it's, it's hard then to say right I'm going to go somewhere else you know yeah. and that was basically it once I went over once that was it didn't want to go anywhere else how many trials after the initial Liverpool trial which as you said was your first one how many other clubs did you go to none so you didn't go on a trial no. no. you just had your mindset I went over, yeah I went over in I think it was February 94 for a week uh, stayed there for a week uh, played a match at the end of the week against Aston Villa funny thing is I went over as a centre half come back as a centre forward so <laughs> figure out now uh, end of the week we played Villa uh, I think we beat them 2-0 I scored 2 of them and they asked me to sign after the match and that was it committed didn't go anywhere else so when you came back then um, like the clubs obviously approached your parents now because it would have been 14 at, at that yeah 14 14 at that, at that point right what was the process like in terms of, you know, how long was the negotiation before you, you knew you were going? And well, back then, I was... No, I'm, not, I'm not looking to The funny thing is, like, nowadays, the talk of kids going away for major money. Yeah. Like, I remember at the time, I was with Lourdes, they, they don't have the people in place back then. Like, now they have people that look after contracts for kids that go away and, you know, people that know what they're talking about. Back then, there was nobody. Yeah. I sat out in Dublin Airport, I remember it, when I was 14, negotiating my own contract with Steve Highway on my own. So, you know, I signed my life away for buttons, basically. Yeah, and I think at the time, when they went to give Lewis Celtic, wherever remuneration was in for them, it was a set of jerseys was offered at first, and I think they eventually got them up to a couple of thousand, but compared to what's going on now, it was, you know, it's just strange, because if I'd have probably gone away to all the other clubs on trial, yeah. and had that bargaining chip, you know, but I mean, at the time, it didn't really interest me. You know what I mean? I wasn't, I want to go for big money or this, that, and the other. It's just, you know, where's the contract I'll sign it? Maybe the thought of the point that was, at that time, there wasn't the money in the game. <clears throat> it wasn't, the game wasn't money-driven, yeah, as it, it is now. It was only starting. It was only starting. It was only starting. It was only starting. It was probably the first yeah. superstar of the Premiership era. So that he hadn't even really kicked on at that stage. Yeah. Um, when you go back to the money side of things, uh, two people that I know went over, one named the club, or mm. the lads themselves, um, but I know the club got the club they played for over here got hundred grand a piece, yeah, and that was ten years ago. Yeah, so ten years ago, hundred grand a hell of a lot of money. You can only imagine what it is now. Yeah, mm. that there are people in specific schoolboy clubs that are just there. Their sole target is to get two or three young lads over to England every year. Yeah, and that's how they keep their jobs. And it's not a part time job; it's a full time paid position in certain clubs. Yeah. I'm so glad that you actually got yeah. in and say, even though you were only with Lourdes for six months, the thoughts that you actually negotiated your own contract without yeah. Lourdes even being involved in it is it alien nowadays, I'd say. So, coming back to, like, you negotiated <coughs> the contract, parents obviously happy enough for you to go over. They couldn't wait to get rid of me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you, so you get out, the culture shock must have been huge. For a kid your age to, to leave Dublin, leave your family, leave the surrounds, your friends, the works, right? 
and he- pitch up in Liverpool. Now, as you said, you, you took to the city in the whole lot. What was it like to? It must have been. It was mad. Huge. Like I mean, you had to remember back then, and you try to tell kids to go away. Now, there's no Facebook, there's no Bebo, Twitter. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Keep in touch with your mates. None of that. Mm. So I think after I went over the first time. I started going over patches like two weeks here, three months there, yeah. during the summer and stuff, and then I think I moved over full time in around July '95. So it was about a year after I went over force, and it was just a case of you know finish the junior cert and, and off you went, you know. And yeah. the funny thing was, you know, we came from a big family. There were six of us. You know, your man and I want to know where you are at all times, and I think the first house I moved into over there, the landlady was about seventy-five. She used to go to bed at half seven at night, and. That was it, you sitting there looking at each other, going, what do we do for the rest of the night, you know? So it was a culture shock to say the least, but you know, look, the homesick team comes into it as well. So you can't keep in touch with your mates, there's no mobile phones, texting everyone back then. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it's about 50 years ago, but you know, you didn't have that. If you wanted to make a phone call, you went down to the phone box, threw a pound coin in, last for 30 seconds, and that was it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it was that part, you probably didn't see, you know, or hear from your mates for about three or four months at a time, you know what I mean, before you went home, so it was tough. Big adjustment, you know. When you did move over originally, um, as I said, we were living in Diggs, how well did the club look after you personally? From a personal point of view, regardless of obviously you had your training yeah. and what you were doing with the club, but did the club pay any attention to you as, as a person rather than as a player? Well, in fairness, as a person, they did because they paid for Diggs obviously when you were but I lived on Anfield Road, the big old houses that faced the Anfield Road, and yeah. that's where we lived. And uh, to start off, there was two of us there, then the second year, I think there was six was all Irish lads you know but like you're talking about they, they were wary of the fact you're there and you're only a young lad so they would organise to come up and pick you up and bring you off to the cinema or that sort of stuff but I mean at the end of the day you're still looking at 75-80% of the time sitting there and you're on in the digs you know what I mean it's fairly lonely especially at that age you know well I was interested the, the, the idea that um, nowadays with the academy structure that they put in place they start to re-emphasise education and, mm. and the whole lot that's involved with the kids what level of emphasis was put on the education for you guys? Because you, you, as you said, you left the junior set, which yeah. you equivalent to the GCSEs in, in England, I'd say, right? Yeah. Um, was there much emphasis? Like, cause you're in, you're in, you're training with the, with the club and the whole lot. What was the typical day like for you? Well, <laughs> typical day, probably grew up at half seven, half eight. I had to be over at the reception in Manfield. Got picked up by Sammy Lee every morning. Give him a hand, going to the cobblers to fix the first team players' boots, which I'm sure wouldn't happen nowadays. Uh, down to Melwood, you, you have your jobs, you, you, you're on a YTS scheme, you train scheme at the time, so you basically were you know, designated a job, whether it was boots, cleaning the medical room, whatever you had to do, sell the kit for the first team. That was your morning. First team rolled in at 10 o'clock, you rolled back out of dressing rooms, got yourself ready, and then trained till probably half 12. Had your lunch and that was it. At the, the first time I went over, double sessions never really happened, you know. Yeah. And I remember at the time, you know, we, we kind of seen it as work to a certain extent and we'd be kind of going home about half, twelve, quarter to one and there was a couple of foreign Scandinavian lads there at the time and they'd be going back out in the afternoon, you know, to practice their touch and this, that, and we'd be walking out kind of leaving gobshites, you know. <laughs> that kind of mentality, like, you know. Yeah, yeah. You look at it as busy fuckers, you know. Yeah, we're, yeah, yeah. we're all heading off to the snooker hall or what have you. You know, it was crazy. But I think in terms of the education, we done one day, one half day a week on a Thursday and we done a sports management course, which was completely useless at the time, you know. It was just a piss take. We went there in Anfield for about two or three hours on a Thursday and you got some sort of piece of paper at the end to say he qualified but it was crazy. Now the last probably year and a half when the academy was built it all changed. Mm. 
it was a case of you know the full-time education people there and stuff like that and i'm sure it's kicked on a million times more than when i was there but even at that it was still maybe a day a week max you know i kind of just left at the time when the, the education really started you know through. started to come through and be more kind of not full-time but a lot of the time was taken up right you know so you were there 14 to 20 now was it i left around when i was 19 19 yeah. yeah so in other words the first four years or so mm. were that routine that you described yeah yeah more or less yeah yeah Right. And then it was a kind of the changeover, more or less, came later with the academy being built yeah. down in Kirby. And, yeah. You know, at the time, Melwood wasn't... I haven't been back to Melwood since I've left, but at the time, it wasn't very glamorous, you know? It sure. was literally changing rooms, canteen, boot room, pitches, and that was it. The mm. gym was dinosaur stuff, you know? Because mm. there wasn't a lot of emphasis on the gym work back then. Yeah. Like, you know, obviously, the foreign coaches came in. Probably seen a change when Julio came in at the time. When I went over first, Sunas had just been sacked. Roy Evans had just got the job. Then later on it was Roy Evans and Julia, then he, oh, Roy Evans was gone, it was just Julia and the more the foreign players and the foreign manager came over, things started to change and the training and the things and obviously the diet, like you go into the canteen when I first went over, you know, you unheard of now, there's like chicken burgers and chips and all sorts of stuff there for the first team players when they have for their lunch, you know what I mean, it was crazy, but it was real, you know, I've seen the pictures of Elwood nowadays and it's this big state-of-the-art place and I said the time was fairly basic, you went in, you done your jobs and you know, there was no two ways about it. Like, oh yeah, remember I had a job cleaning the treatment room. I had the completely antibacterial stuff everywhere, and Mark Leto was the physio at the time. And if you didn't do that properly, I remember twice getting phone calls when I was back in the digs in Anfield Road saying, get your arse back down here. You didn't do it properly. <laughs> You'd have to get two buses Jeez. back to Melwood and go back in with the mop and bucket <laughs> and finish your job and back to the house. You know, like that sort of stuff just wouldn't happen nowadays, you yeah. know? Yeah. I think it's all segregated, the first thing trying there, had me trying there, you know, at the time was... Is there anything to be said for that, though, Lyle? In comparison to the way people say that uh, footballers are pampered now, yeah. you, see, you see the stories, they've all got little issues, they just seem to be a little bit above yeah. the law. Well, look, I mean, it's, you know, I've, I've spoke to kids that have gone away, and you know, we give them a piece of advice, what it was like when you went over and stuff, but as you say, the money entertains kids going away now. You're talking million euro plus deals, so... Yeah. You're thinking people are going over, is the hunger still there? You know what I mean? But at the time it was a case that you literally were a part of the team, you've done your work, you've got the boot ready for the players and also you have that closest with the players at the time, you know. So I mean in that way you're kinda of up front with the players, you're training with them. Every Friday you'd have a game, you team against force team, the force team would play their team that they're gonna play on the Saturday. Mm go through their shape and stuff, tell us to play the way whoever they're going to play is going to play, you know, right. that sort of stuff. So you still, all that stuff was brilliant. But then when we moved up to the academy, that end was taken away from it. You know, you're literally just training to kiss. You with that group only. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. 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 So you, you, you settled in, you have your routine and the whole lot, right? What was it like in terms of the progression through? Like, How quickly did you feel that you were embedded in the actual team and, you know, was was there as much rotation of the kids through the teams as we, as we see at the moment where you'll see the 16s go and play with the 21s yeah. you'll see the likes of Jer- Jerome Sinclair last year West Brom making his, his debut for the full team and mm-hmm. um, now maybe through necessity as opposed to choice but yeah. you're starting to see those kids rotate through all the time for yourself at the time because it wasn't it wasn't the same like the, the emphasis wasn't on squad as such yeah. back then um, what was it like for you looking up? What was your aspiration in the first couple of years in terms of where you it was, were? It was funny when I first went over, I'd say I was 15, so obviously you had the A and B team, that's the way it used to be. There was no, you know, you had the, I was actually still eligible to play for the under 16s, which I did on occasions, but the full time lads, you basically play for the A or the B team, and then there was the reserves in the first team. So 
starting off going over and looking at B team, A team reserves and, and so on and so forth. But I remember I was only over there about two months and maybe through lack of players, injuries, I don't know what happened, but I ended up playing in the reserves up front very much two months after coming over, you know, it was crazy. Yeah. I was only 15 at the time, Jeez. you know, so <laughs> we played Mountain Forest. I remember at the time, Sammy Lee was the manager, Big Joe Corrigan was there, and uh, talk about throwing in at the deep end, you know, you're, you're playing tonight, I was going, playing for who? Oh, the reserves have a match, we, we haven't got enough players here in, so, was, so got there anyway, played up from a rush. You know, that was bizarre, because you were talking six months before that, I was playing down in Sunroy Park, so, yeah. you know what I mean, but we're all lads of my own age, so, and in the space of six months, you're playing up front with someone like Bush, who's, you know, arguably one of the best players they've ever had over there, so, I mean, that kind of was a one-off. At that stage, then, you're out with the B team. You you know, some weeks, you might be looking at the sheet. They've put the sheet up on a Friday to say who the squads were. You know, you're looking to see in the A team and, and that sort of stuff. And then when that kind of gradually phased out, they brought in the 17s and the 19s for the academy. So you'd start off. I was starting off in the 19s. I was with Barola and the lads there. And then you'd go 19s, reserves. So you're talking probably last year or so that I was there. It was a fairly regular in the reserves, you know. Mm. So, I mean, at that stage, the reserves was... I mean, the loan, the loan culture wasn't there back then. A lot of the lads that were with us at the time probably would have, if it was nowadays, would have gone out and loan. You know, clubs would have come in saying, he's scoring goals in reserves, we'll take him. But back then, it didn't happen. You know what I mean? It just didn't happen. So. What was the contact like between reserve and first team squads? Obviously, it was the definition of the weekends when obviously yeah. reserves are playing whatever, Saturday morning and first team are playing Saturday afternoon. But all week... <clears throat> we're obviously known as well yeah. as you said they're putting Friday so what was the interaction like when you were training with the reserves obviously at that age of probably 70 whatever it might be you probably weren't getting near the first team but what yeah. was your role like within the group basically well basically if you're training with reserves you were out with Sammy with Sammy Lee and you had a mixture of kind of young pros like myself were a couple of first team players probably on the way out just being pushed into reserves to get them game ball keep them happy uh, you know, it was a strange atmosphere because a lot of the first team players that come down didn't want to be there, didn't care, do you know what I mean? And then you'd have the young pros who were trying to make an impression and bustling the button train and stuff like that. You'd, you'd have the, young, the senior pros looking at you basically, you'd have them looking down on you, they'd be bleeding, making a show on me, this, this kind of lark, you know? But uh, I mean, at the time, basically, you spent your week with the reserves and then you played your game at the weekend, but it was literally a case of first team players were taken off, reserves were sent off. And, you know, you, you kind of had a fair idea who you're going to be teamed up with come the weekend, you know. But, I mean, the reserve games back then, very rarely would you play in Anfield. Like, a lot of the games you'd play in Gig Lane or places like that, small grounds, you know, where you get a, you'd get a decent crowd at them as yeah. well. So, so, it was kind of, at the time, I mean, the reserves are a tough league, especially when you're a young lad, you know, it's really tough. So, you, you're in the pile, you're in, you're in the fish pond at the time, and you're over <coughs> Obviously, back home, they're big. To your mates, to the area, the whole lot, you are a big name. You're playing, you're in the reserves for Liverpool and the whole lot. What was it like to come back and say play with the the or the 19th and stuff for, for Ireland? Well, but, yeah, t- when I went over four, you're coming back playing with the 16s, yeah. Ireland, you know, 16s, 17s, and up to 18s, 19s, 20s, all that sort of stuff. But originally, you're coming back playing with the 16s, and you know, you're mixing with other lads that have gone off to other clubs, like I said, the likes of Robbie Keane and Richie Dunn and stuff. Where, Steve McPhail were all around their age group, so it was great to see them because you knew them from school where growing up, but I mean, you're talking about back in the area, it was probably, a lot of players have gone away from Tallah since then, but it was probably the first kind of big marquee sign, if you like, that went to a big club, and there was a lot of attention focused around at the time, you know. Yeah. I mean, if 
people often said to me, would you not think you should have better off going to a smaller club, start those small, build your way up, you know? Which is easy to say, there's, there's cases to be made for both ways you go, you know what I mean? But at the time, it's very hard to turn down a club like Liverpool and Memphis, you know? And my parents at the time, they hadn't got a clue about football, yeah. do you know what I mean? So they're not going to be there to advise me as such, do you know what I mean? So, and you go home at the weekends, maybe every three or four months, see your mates as much as you can, and you try and be normal, but you know yourself, there's a lot of people want to come up and knock at your door and say, can you get us a ticket, can you get us a jersey, can you get us this, can you get us that, you know? Well, it was brilliant, though. I used to go back to the schools when I come home as well, see the teachers, that sort of stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. It was a big deal in the area at the time, because you're talking about a place that was, you know, fairly poor at the time, yeah. you know yourself, so it was a massive deal. And then when you went, obviously, as you said, you're coming back and forth and you're playing with the Irish schoolboy teams. When you went back over, how close do you think you were getting towards getting into the first team? Well, it's probably a case that every time you got a few goals to reserve, you looked up and the, there's another multi-million pound player coming through the door, you know, so it's... Well, well, sorry for you know, what yeah. I'm trying to say is, were you thinking, well, you're scoring a few goals and you're thinking, I need to be getting closer and closer to the first team. Yeah. And how many promises were, or were there any promises made that you might get in, you might get on the bench? Well, to be honest yeah. with you, if you're talking about at the time, I was a centre forward, you had Robbie Fowler, you had Caroline Dreva, you had Rush, who was probably coming towards the end of the time. You had Mike Long, who was breaking through, you had Collie Moore, do you know what I mean? So, I mean, I was always looking at her wary of the fact that, you know, I've got to do something ridiculous here to, to kind of push past all them people. To get. So, I've never really, I know it might sound strange, but I never really sat there thinking, you know, I'm going to make the big breakthrough here, I'm going to be a superstar at Liverpool. I was kind of always mindful of the thought that... It might not work out. Really. It just might work out. But you still love the fact that you're there and playing, and, you know, whether it's the reserves or the 19s or whatever you are, you love playing, but at the time, there's so many players ahead of you, mm. and so many players, like Fowler at the time, was on fire. You know, Michael Long burst under the scenes on fire, so... Were, you, you, know. were you looking at, as you said, you were playing Robbie Keane with the youth international, were you looking at Robbie Keane playing with Wolves, and then going to Coventry at that age mm. for a massive amount yeah, of money. And we were looking at him going, just that could be me. Was that a thought in your mind? It's kind of like Robbie went away the same age as I did, but obviously I'm playing for the ninth day and he's making his yeah. debut on the senior team, you know. So, but look, that's the argument that people have to the cows from home, you know what I mean? That if you go up to Wolves, a, a lot of people say if you start off at Wolves and it doesn't work out, where do you go from there? Do you know what I mean? A lot of people that go away to Liverpool, Manchester, and it doesn't work out, they'll always be picked up generally by other clubs. Do you know what I mean? So, but in fairness to him, he hit the ground running and took a chance. So, I mean, you can't knock the fella out. Mm-hmm. And now, who impressed you when you were there in terms of staff and in terms of the players? Um, if you had to pick maybe one of each or two? Um, staff was, I mean, it's very difficult. Like, you're talking the looks of Steve Hoyway, Sammy Lee, at the t- you know, who are Liverpool legends, but at the time I wasn't. Didn't really know a lot about the history of the club, mm. do you know what I mean? So we really, did, it was just Steve and Sammy. They're you just know, that's telling you what to do. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. So you don't really look after them as these kind of iconic people that, like, I remember at the time I was really good friends with Alan Kennedy. I hadn't a clue who he was. Right. Just some bloke used to come around the club. And, right. you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's only years later that you kind of found out with this fellow. Legend, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. you know, that's all right. Of the staff, I was very close to Sammy Lee. Right. Very close to Sammy, so. He was probably the one that stood out at the staff, you know. Right. Players-wise, again, there were so many top players at the time, you know, really conducted himself and looked after the young lads. And I mean, in terms of a player, me being a centre-forward, the one that stood out for me was probably Fowler, yeah. you know. Yeah. Genuinely nice fella. Always had time for the kids and 
you know, just we used to do shooting practice with him. It was ridiculous, you know, ridiculous. Yeah. Left foot, right foot headers, unbelievable. Yeah. The fella had it all, you know. Yeah. So he was probably the one that impressed me the most. Excellent. Thanks very much. Um, any other questions then from the lads? Yeah. How fat did the run up get? Seriously, you were there. I've seen the pictures of you training with them. Yeah. And he was wearing a pair of cycling shorts that look like. I don't know how to describe them because they look, they look like a skirt wrapped around each leg. That's probably the best. <laughs> well, it's funny because I'm actually still very good nice with Razor. So yeah. he'd be one of the one few ones that I keep in touch with. Don't ask why, but anyway. At the time, I actually only had this conversation with someone the other day. At the time, when you went home for your pre season break, you know you got eight weeks off. You came back, you start back training. And you're talking forcing players, not just Razor, coming back a stone overweight. Do you know what I mean? And literally, the coaches at the time handed them a black bag and saying, train with that for the next four weeks, obviously. <laughs> you know, it was crazy stuff. It's not like, at the time, your fitness levels probably, you know, went from 100% down to 30%. Yeah. And then you had to struggle for eight weeks to get them back up again, where nowadays they probably dip 15, 20%. And, you know, obviously you have your time off, which is important. But the, the pros nowadays, they just don't stop for the summer. They're giving programs to maintain their fitness levels and stuff. But back then, it was crazy. You've got all sorts of players coming back. Major league overweight. So you say nineteen, it's did you know it was coming to the end? Well it's kind of been on when I was nineteen I was actually on my toured contract, believe it or not. Mm. So I'd been given another contract for a year, which suited me because I wanted to see how the last year went. Julio was at the being appointed at the start of that year, which I thought was a strange situation because Roy Evans was there. I actually thought he'd done a decent job at the time. A lot of people caught said he was too nice for the job but they brought Julia in as joint manager, which I thought was ridiculous. He should have just sacked the man and gave Julia the job in the first place. But when Julia got the job on his own, he didn't really take much of an interest in the reserves or the youths and that sort of stuff. Which, in fairness to Roy Evans at the time, he did. Mm-hmm. But I remember in particular, my contract came up for renewal and I sat down with Steve Poirier and we both agreed, look, you're probably banging your head against the wall here in terms of getting into the force team. So it's probably you're better off going elsewhere and getting force team football. So I, that kind of suited me at the time. But then I played... I'd say it was about three months before the end of the season. We played everything in the mini derby, and I was in, I think it was in Gig Lane. It was a major, I could have got five or six thousand people there. And it was the first reserve game that Hilly had come to watch since he'd been taken over, and he had Phil Thompson there as his assistant manager. And I remember the game, I scored the winner, we beat him 1 0. Had a good game, Richard Dunn was playing at the time. And after the match, Hilly pulled me and said, Look, what's the situation with your contract? And I said, My contract's up in a few weeks, you know, I've already decided I'm going on. And, and he was like, No, don't go anywhere, we, we want to sign you again. And, We'll get you out on loan next season and, and this sort of stuff. And, and that kind of threw a spanner in the works, you know. It's kind of well, it kind of made me mind up I'm going to push on. And I say that at the time it was hard to turn down to stay as well. So at the time I was kind of torn between the both. And to be honest with you, that was around the time I think Wigan came in for me, offered me a two year deal. I had mad offers to go to China and stuff like that, you know. But I came home that summer to think about, which would have been 1999. I came home to have a little think about what I was going to do and never went back. You know, <laughs> never went back. Do you think that was down to the fact that the club weren't like was Julia being honest with you? Do you think he was being honest with you? I think he was. I think he was kind of surprised at how well a lot of young lads at the time were playing. You know, because the first team squad weren't set in the world away, and he decided to go down and have a look what was below that pile, and he probably got surprised. You know, that the talent that was there, but. I was kind of made me wonder about that stage of going. That kind of threw a spanner in the work. So I remember at the time I was at the going down the agent route and I had an agent who was, you know, washing me clothes and all for me at the time. So <laughs> he kind of, uh, I said, look, I'll take a couple of weeks off. I'll go home. I'll think about what I'm going to do and, and I'll get back in touch with you 
he said, okay, well, look, Liverpool are back the 7th of July and Wigan are back the 6th of July, whatever it was at the time. So he said, right, well, give me a shout in a couple of weeks, I'll let you know. And then he'd ring me and say, look, they're on, look at the final, what you're doing. I said, look, give me a ring next week, I haven't decided yet, you know. And before I know it, the time had passed, I was back home, I was living with a board, I was enjoying the high life, and, and that was it then. The, the, the phone call stopped, you know. Mm-hmm. Can you talk us through that year of immediately post Liverpool mm-hmm. and the decision making process and motivation and all that type of thing that takes you from yeah. being part of a huge club to deciding to opt out voluntarily? Yeah, it was crazy. You know, at the time I probably didn't have a lot of guidance. I'm not saying that that's anyone else's fault but my own fault. <coughs> the, you know, the, what I say to people, that the, I can handle the fact that I mess things up myself. Do you know what I mean? And a lot of people like to blame what well, that manager didn't like me or yeah. this fella done this to me, this fella done that. Like, I basically made the balls of myself right. and I put my hand up to that. And I, it's easier to accept, funny enough, you know. But at the time when I came back, it was just like, I remember I hit a period around coming towards Christmas where I had another club and, you know, all the lads were back training and stuff. And I remember going, what the name of GAs I'm to doing, you know. So, I had not club. I remember at the time I got a phone call off Pat Dolan, who was managing Pat's at the time with, with Liam Buckley, asked would I go down, so I said, look, I'm not doing anything else, so I'll wander down and, and play a few games and see what happens, and I mean, the condition fitness-wise had just deteriorated, I had no interest, you know, I literally had lost all interest, don't ask me why, I just, you know, I went from training every day, having this structured lifestyle, you have to be here, you have to do this, you have to do this, and to basically come back to doing nothing. You know what I mean, back here. And the funny thing is, when you come home, you know, all your mates are in work, so you're sitting around all day going, nothing that I'm Jason doing here. So I ended up going down to Pats, didn't last very long, but left in the end, and, and that's when Stephen Kenny actually came in and took me to Longford at the time, you know. Mm. Which was a bit of a culture shock because at the time Longford went a very big club, you know, they were kind of only had to come into the Premier Division, and I mean, you're going from a case of you know, the glitzy lights of a big club like Liverpool and going to Anfield and stuff, then down to Strokestown Road and, you know, we trained over at the back of the driving range on Selbridge and you probably had to kick a thousand balls off the training ground before you could start training and stuff, you know. Yeah. But in fairness, I bought into it and I think I was there for about two or three months, done a really hard pre-season, got myself back into condition. We went down to Limerick, we were doing four sessions a day, it was mad stuff. Got myself back and... In the back of my mind, I'd be in touch with a club, couple of clubs in England, prove your fitness, get yourself back, scoring a few goals, and you'd be back on the plane again. Hmm. And uh, we, were, we were playing a pre-season friendly against Northampton Town. And remember the first half, I was doing really well. I was actually happy with myself. Second half, went up for a header, landed awkward, and my leg just snapped under me. That was that. What was, that? What so was the injury? Broken ankle. Right. Broken ankle, dislocated ankle. So had the operation, screws, bolts, was out for about... I was for the bounds of a year, you know. Mm. Came back then, and I think long for kind of mid middle of the season. So I missed all of the pre-season the following year and stuff like that. So I was playing catch-up fitness-wise. Had to go and have another operation. Came back, was playing in the fourth team at the time when I was nowhere near fit enough to be playing. I played well, down in Cork the year we got the, to the cup final for the first time, the FA Cup final, and uh, scored the winner down in Cork. Was playing, was playing okay, but I knew in the back of my mind that I wasn't doing myself justice. I just wasn't fit. And I come to the time when I think we were in the semi-final of the FAI Cup, I just walked away. What age were you? I was like 20. 20. 20, yeah. Maybe pushing 21 at the time. Walked away and then a couple of months later I ended up back playing Mickey Mouse football with my mate's team. A well Premier B. From Grace there. Uh, right? My mate had to, well at the time it was like, you know, get yourself, do a few training sessions. 
you know, I wasn't interested. So I do a few training sessions, get yourself fit. A couple of League of Ireland clubs were still knocking on the door, you know, trying to get me back. I was still young enough to get myself fit and, and have a decent career in the League of Ireland, you know. At the time, the money was starting to get really big in the league. So I went training with this local team, and two weeks after I started training to get myself back in the shape, I broke my other leg. To your and I've done since then. I've done bony legs twice on the collarbone. By the time I was twenty-four, <laughs> so, <laughs> someone was telling me something was time to pack it in. Yeah, yeah. There's a message coming there. Yeah, so that's yeah. what I did. I think it was, it was twenty-three, maybe twenty-four at the time. I just decided that's it. That's I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah. I know you were saying um, no one really was there to advise you mm. back back when you went over. Would you have any advice for kids that maybe are having the opportunities to go over now? Like I know it's a lot different. There's yeah. more kids going yeah. over. But um, do you think like it's an idea to stay for a few years and say, prove yourself here first? In an ideal world, you know, it's been proven that kids that go away later probably have a better chance. They're more mature, you get your education. As I say, I came home from England, junior served under my belt, well, nothing else. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Not a penny in the pocket. So, kids got over now, it's a different kettle of fish. Ideal situation, they'd all stay and you know, train together and stuff like that, but where do you get the games that are going to improve them as players and stuff, you know, so what I always say to kids going away, I remember, I remember in particular one case, a good friend of mine, John Paul Kelly was going to Liverpool, and at the time they were asked me just have a chat with him and tell him, you know, yeah. this sort of stuff, so I remember I pulled Jockster, and I spoke to him about it since, and I said, look, this four or six months is probably the hardest, if you can last six months over it, you probably last six years, because it gets easier after that, four or six months very tough, and I think he was home around five months. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's it's a big culture shock, and some kids can't handle it. You know, yeah. but a lot of the stuff now, with kids going away, it's it's gone crazy. They're they're moving the families over to keep the kids happy and stuff, which is not a bad thing. You know, yeah. you wouldn't have real my lot. There was six of us, but uh, a lot of the, the parents are going over with the kids now, which is not a bad thing either. You know, but yeah. I mean, it's it's the easy argument to say people should stay later, but it's very hard to turn it down when it knocks on your door as well. You know. Well, just last question for you. Well, not last question, but you're back involved again and again. Back involved again, yeah. Back man, well, you're managing now. Yeah, Passing on the advice. Trying to. <laughs> <laughs> Are you back in love with the game, more to the point? Yeah, I t to be honest with you, when I was out of the game around the 23-24 mark, I got a phone call from Leo, which is funny how things work in circles, and it was my old manager, Beryl Bradley, who rang me and said, will you come down and do a bit of coaching with the kids? So I went down and took over the team. I think we were under 12 at the time. And um, I took over the 12 Premier team, and I had them for three years. And it was more or less when I went back over with the kids, that's when I actually fell back in love with the game. You know, it was crazy. I was just like, this is where I want, you know. And I was coaching and enjoying them. I had the kids for three years, and they went a lot of, a couple of them went on to England and that sort of stuff. And, you know, it was great to be able to pass on that kind of advice, which was fairly fresh at the time, you know. But uh, then, of course, the money and the things came into it, and I got offered a couple of senior managers' jobs, which I took my four senior managers' job when I was about 25. And uh, I've been doing it ever since, really, you know. But I've been on and off working with the kids as well. But, you know, I've more or less run the senior teams in the last 10 years, so. Good. So it's kind of a case. I still enjoy it. Look, it's different now. You have to work, you have a job, and you know what I mean? You yeah. go training, and you have kids, and wives, and mortgages, and stuff like that. You know, back then, it was, all you had to worry about was football. Yeah. And you still make, made an arse of it, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we'd be torturing you long enough, Niall. Thanks so many for no that. Um, we'll get you involved in our quick... So I heard from my sister's friend's cousin that Kohl's has the lowest prices of the season and had to see for myself. For real, the deals are so good. I got my kids' summer tees for $5.99, a cute swimsuit for myself for $17.99, 
and a shark vacuum for $199.99, which will be great after Sandy Beach Days. I got Kohl's cash too, and I got it all in less than an hour with free store pickup. So yeah, summer, I'm ready for you. Select styles ends May 23rd. Some exclusions apply. See store or kohls.com for details. Turn off your laptop. We're on staycation. I'm on TotalWine.com. They have so many rosés, chardonnays, and proseccos. It feels like a real vacation. Wondrous selection, helpful guides, ridiculously low prices. Total Wine and more. Sports Social Podcast Network.